Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover neurological injuries at gynecological surgery and tips for avoiding them. Iatrogenic nerve injury following gin surgery occurs more commonly than is recognized and is a significant cause of post-op neuropathy. Patient malpositioning, improper incision sites, and self-retaining retractors are major contributors to the origins of intraoperative gynecological nerve injury. The incidence of neuropathy following gynecological surgery has been reported to range from 1 to 1.9%. The majority of cases will have a good prognosis, with minimal or no interventions necessary for resolution of the neurological impairment. But a minority of patients sustain long-term complications requiring prolonged treatment or even reparative surgery. We will cover the types of neural injury from sin surgery, their pathophysiology, and their diagnosis in this session. Neuropathy results when there is a disruption to the blood supply of the nerve caused by injury. Three types of microvascular changes occur with nerve injury. Neuropraxia is a result of external nerve compression leading to a disruption of conduction across a small portion of the axon. Nerve recovery takes weeks or months once remyelinization occurs. Axon emesis is caused by profound nerve compression or traction. Damage occurs to the axon only with preservation of the supporting Schwann cells. Regeneration is possible because the supporting Schwann cells remain intact. Recovery time, however, is longer than neuropraxia. The most severe form of injury is turned neuroatmesis and is results from complete nerve transection or complete nerve ligation, where both the axon and the Schwann cells are disrupted. Regeneration is rendered impossible, and without reparative restorative surgery, the prognosis is usually poor. The mechanism of intraoperative nerve injury involves a combination of compression, stretch, entrapment, or transection of nerve fibers. Compression and stretch injuries are typically caused by improper placement of self-retaining retractors like the Balfour or the Bulkwalter retractors and in prolonged positioning of the patient in stirrups. Transection injuries are largely related to incorrectly sighted surgical incisions. The fan and steel and low transverse incisions are the most common incisions performed in gynecology. Should these incisions extend beyond the lateral margin of the inferior rectus abdominis muscle, the lateral cutaneous branches of the iliohypogastric and ilioinguinal nerves are liable to be injured. 
a cadaver study found that abdominal wall incisions below the level of the anterior superior iliac spine and approximately 5 centimeters superior to the pubic symphysis had the greatest potential for injuring the ilioinguinal or iliohypogastric nerves. Entrapment nerve injuries are more commonly encountered in pelvic floor reconstructive surgery. Pain is a common symptom of nerve entrapment in contrast to loss of function and numbness, which occurs with nerve transection. A recent study showed that chronic nerve-related pain was seen in 7% of women following fan and steel incisions, and this was attributed to entrapment of the ilioinguinal and the iliohypogastric nerves. Although rare, another source of perioperative lumbosacral nerve injury to consider is related to complications of regional anesthesia. During epidural or spinal neuroaxial blockade, poor technique may cause paresthesia and pain as a result of needle or catheter tip trauma to nerve roots and the spinal cord. Pain may also result from injection of anesthetic into the wrong spinal compartment. Most often, neurological damage secondary to regional anesthesia administration is immediately apparent as the patient becomes symptomatic during or shortly thereafter the procedure. Okay, well now that we've covered those basics, let's look at some specific nerve injury syndromes. The femoral nerve originates from nerve roots L2 to L4. It passes inferolaterally through the psoas muscle and emerges from its lateral border. It exits the pelvis beneath the inguinal ligament lateral to the femoral vessels to enter the thigh. Gynecological surgery is the most common contributor to iatrogenic femoral nerve injury, and abdominal hysterectomy is mostly responsible for this. Of all reports of gynecological-associated neuropathy, the femoral nerve is the most frequently implicated with an incidence of about 11%. Femoral neuropathy commonly occurs as a result of compression of the nerve against the pelvic sidewall as it emerges from the lateral border of the psoas. This happens when excessively deep retractor blades are used Used for visualization. In a 10-year prospective study, Goldman et al. reported an 8% incidence of femoral neuropathy when self-retaining retractors were used during gin surgery compared to less than 1% when they weren't used. Now, inappropriate patient positioning in lithotomy is another cause of stretch-related femoral neuropathy. Hyperflexion Abduction, that's abduction, and external rotation of the hip results in kinking of the femoral nerve under the inguinal ligament. Femoral neuropathy presents with weakness of hip flexion and adduction or adduction and knee extension. So that's a clinical pearl. Femoral neuropathy presents with weakness of hip flexion and adduction and knee extension. There is loss of the knee jerk reflex and there's paresthesia over the anterior and the medial thigh as well as the medial aspect of the calf. Again, here's your clinical pearl. Femoral neuropathy presents with weakness of hip flexion and adduction and knee extension. There is loss of the knee jerk reflex and paresthesia over the anterior and medial thigh as well as the medial aspect of the calf. All right. Now let's cover the ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerves. 
the T12 to L1 nerve roots give rise to the ilioinguinal and the iliohypogastric nerves. Both nerves have a sensory function only, while the iliohypogastric provides sensation to the skin of the gluteal and hypogastric regions, the ilioinguinal nerve provides sensory innervation to the skin overlying the groin, the inner thigh, and the labia majora. Injury to these nerves is typically caused by suture entrapment at the lateral borders of the low transverse or fanestial incisions that extend beyond the lateral border of the rectus abdominis muscle. The reported incidence of ilioinguinal or iliohypogastric neuropathy following a fanestial incision has been reported to be as high as 3.7%. Now, the diagnostic triad for ilioinguinal or iliohypogastric nerve entrapment syndrome consists of sharp burning pain radiating from the incision site to the mons pubis, labia, and the thigh, paresthesia over the nerve distribution area, and pain relief following the administration of local anesthetic. Well, what about the genital femoral nerve? The genital femoral nerve, which is L1 to L2, transverses the anterior surface of the psoas and lies immediately lateral to the external iliac vessels. It divides into the genital branch, which enters a deep inguinal ring, and a femoral branch, which passes deep to the inguinal ligament within the femoral sheath. This nerve is susceptible to injury during pelvic sidewall surgery and during removal of the external iliac nodes. Genital femoral nerve injury results in paresthesia over the mons pubis, the labia majorum, and the femoral triangle. Again, that's your clinical pearl. The genital femoral nerve has paresthesia over the mons pubis, labia majora, and the femoral triangle. Next, let's cover the obturator nerve. Remember that the anterior branches of L2 to L4 give rise to the obturator nerve and converge behind the psoas muscle. The obturator nerve then passes over the pelvic brim in front of the sacroiliac joint and behind the common iliac vessels to enter the thigh via the obturator foramen. This nerve is most frequently injured during retroperitoneal surgery, excision of endometriosis, the passage of a trocar through the obturator foramen, insertion of transobturator tapes, and during paravaginal defect repairs. Obturator neuropathy will present with sensory loss in the upper medial thigh and motor weakness in the hip adductors. That's the obturator neuropathy. It is sensory loss in the upper medial thigh and motor weakness in the hip adductors. Well, what about the sciatic and the common peroneal nerve? The sciatic nerve arises from L4 to S3 nerve roots. The sciatic emerges from the pelvis below the piriformis muscle, curving laterally and downward through the gluteal region. Initially, it lies midway between the posterior superior iliac spine and the ischial tuberosity. Lower down in the thigh, it courses midway between the ischial tuberosity and the greater trochanter. The common peroneal nerve and the tibial nerve are its two derivatives at the mid-thigh. The common peroneal nerve importantly winds forward around the neck of the fibula. The sciatic and the peroneal nerves are commonly injured at the sciatic notch at the lateral aspect of the fibular neck, respectively. Both nerves are susceptible to stretch injuries from hyperflexion of the thighs in improper lithotomy positions. Furthermore, the common peroneal nerve may be compressed at the fibular neck in lithotomy. 
sciatic nerve injury presents a sensory impairment below the knee and weakness of hip extension and knee flexion. Foot drop is reported when the common peroneal nerve is injured along with paresthesia over the calf and the dorsum of the foot. Again, that's your clinical pearl. Sciatic nerve injury presents as sensory impairment below the knee and weakness of hip extension and knee flexion. Foot drop is reported when the common peroneal nerve is injured along with paresthesia over the calf and the dorsum of the foot. Okay, let's take a quick break from all that information and come back and talk about the brachial plexus and those injuries. The brachial plexus originates from nerve roots C5 to T1. It supplies the upper limb and lies within the posterior triangle of the neck. The radial nerve leaves the posterior compartment of the arm by winding around a spinal groove on the back of the humerus. Pressure on the humerus during arm positioning can result in sensory loss in the lateral three and a half fingertips and paralysis of the wrist and finger extenders. The ulnar nerve arises from the medial cord and enters the forearm posterior to the medial epicondyle of the humerus. Undue pressure placed on the medial aspect of the elbow during arm board positioning can compress the ulnar nerve as it winds around the medial epicondyle. As a result of the arm falling from the board, the arm hangs by the side and is medially rotated and pronated. This is known as an herbs palsy or the waiter's tip deformity. Brachial plexus injuries have also been reported when shoulder braces are used to provide patient support in steep Trendelenburg positions during laparoscopic surgery. The lower brachial plexus nerve roots, those are C8 to T1, are stretched if the brace is positioned too laterally. This results in a clumpy style palsy with loss of the function of the small muscles of the hand. So that's a clinical pearl. The lower brachial plexus nerve roots, C8 to T1, are stretched if the brace is positioned too laterally. This results in a clumpy style of palsy. All right, now that we've reviewed those, let's briefly talk about treatment of these unforeseen nerve injuries. Neuropathies presenting post-op require a careful history and exam to identify the extent and the probable mechanism of nerve injury. All too often, patients' neuropathic complaints are dismissed in the setting of residual anesthesia, incisional pain, or post-op analgesia, especially during the acute post-op period. It's also important to distinguish iatrogenic nerve injury from other post-op neurological complaints like musculoskeletal injury and autoimmune or inflammatory conditions. Fortunately, most neuropathies will resolve spontaneously with minimal intervention. Sensory neuropathies typically resolve within five days, whereas motor deficits may take up to 10 weeks to recover. Occasionally, neuropathies persist beyond a year. Detailed neurological examination and EMG studies are key to diagnosing a neurological deficit. Once a neuropathy has been identified, the patient should be referred to a neurologist. EMG testing is useful in identifying and localizing acute nerve injury by measuring sensory and motor nerve conduction velocities. 
with intraoperative nerve injuries, EMG should be performed three to four weeks from the point of suspicion of nerve damage as denervation of the affected muscle is often delayed. Again, EMG should be performed about one month after the point of suspicion of nerve damage as denervation of the afflicted muscle is often delayed. Acutely, the management of neuropathy should be dictated by the symptoms presented. Painful neuropathies often respond to pharmacological agents known to be effective in the treatment of neurogenic pain, like tricyclic antidepressants and GABA antagonists. Painful neuropathies rarely fail to resolve after six months. In such cases, local nerve block or even surgical nerve excision or decompression may be considered. Nerve lesions that do not heal are often the result of complete nerve transection. These require specialist referral for possible microsurgical reanastomosis that can include tension-free end-to-end neuroreanastomosis. Lastly, as we wrap up this session, is a quick word about prevention. Crucial in preventing nerve injury is the pre-op identification of patients who are more prone to neurological complications. Studies have shown that patients who have a thin body habitus, ill-developed abdominal wall muscles, or a narrow pelvis are more at risk of retractor blade-associated nerve injury. Such patients are at further risk if the operating time exceeds four hours. A large number of atrogenic lumbosacral nerve injuries during gen surgery can be attributed to incorrect positioning of self-retaining retractor blades. The gold standard of correct positioning is for the self-retractor blades to cradle the rectus muscles without compressing the psoas muscle underneath. When positioning the retractors, the surgeons must check visually and by direct palpation that the psoas muscle is not entrapped between the blades and the pelvic sidewall. Furthermore, the shallowest blade retractors sufficient to provide adequate exposure should be chosen, and it has been suggested that the degree of nerve injury is proportional to blade length. Rolled up laparotomy pads may be used to cushion the retractor blades against the pelvic sidewall as a precaution. Retractor blade position should be monitored intermittently during the operation and readjusted accordingly. Also, it's recommended that retractors should be repositioned at regular intervals to relieve blade pressure against the pelvic sidewall if a lengthy operation is being undertaken. Regarding prevention in lithotomy patients, the proper lithotomy position dictates that the hip and knee are only moderately flexed. At the hip, there should be minimal abduction, that's abduction, and external rotation. The stirrups or boots should be at equal heights and excessive movement should be avoided since excessive movement around the hip joint results in stretch and or compression of the sciatic and the femoral nerves. Common peroneal nerve injury is avoided when there is padding in place between the lateral fibular head and the stirrup, thus preventing nerve compression against a hard surface. As with abdominal surgery, the length of the operative time during lithotomy has been cited as a significant risk factor for increasing the risk of nerve injury, especially if the time exceeds two hours in lithotomy. Lastly, a surgeon should avoid extending the incisions in the abdomen beyond the lateral margins of the rectus muscles where the ilioinguinal and the iliohypogastric nerves lie. If wide margins are necessary, upward curving incisions should be made to avoid the path of these underlying nerves. 
Well, that wraps up our podcast covering neuronal injury at gin surgery. We'll see you next time.